Hi. Are we recording? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the first episode of the Grad Student's Guide to Murder. Ooh. Yes. Where we tell you how to murder. Yikes. Uh, if that's what this podcast is, we're getting fired immediately. Anyway, I'm Ziaretsky. And I am Veronica Breesman. And we are your hosts for this great upcoming podcast that we have not prepared for at all. Nope. Actually, you prepared. You prepared a lot. Uh, yeah, I that's did. That's all you did this week. I did spend a lot of time. Actually, I don't even think I worked this week you because... You spent, like, an embarrassingly long amount of time on this, so yes. it should be good. Yes. Although I'm not embarrassed at all. I'm actually very proud of myself. But anyway, just a little introduction of who we are. We're basically two geoscience grad students uh, based in California. And that is all you need to know about us. Mm -hmm. um, and we like murder. Love it. Specifically, gory, graphic, disturbing. I'm, <laughs> I'm not necessarily in it for the gore. I just like the... The wow factor. I like weird. Yeah. I like cults, murder, kidnappings, plane crash stories. Yeah. It's all good. We're going to talk about uh, all of those things on here. Yeah, thanks to uh, Karen Kilgariff and Georgia Hardstark. Yep. Our favorites from Idols. My Favorite Murder. Yep. That's pretty much the inspiration for this We're podcast. pretty much just <laughs> copying just popping, My um, Favorite Murder and saying, come listen to us. Yeah. We're not them, but... Yeah. You might like us, too. <laughs> uh, where do we go from here? Well, how was your week? Um, my week is good. I just had a, like, panicky moment that I thought it was Friday and went through a whole week. But so far, it's felt like three weeks, and it's only been three days. I think we think it's Friday because our whole week has led up to this. And yeah. it's, we jumped the gun, and it's Wednesday. That's true. Also, every day might as well be the same in quarantine. Yes. Yeah, that's that's a good point to bring up, that our first podcast ever and first episode is in the middle of a global pandemic. Yeah, which is indeed which a that's pandemic. I guess that's when you're, that's the best time to make a podcast, right? I wonder how many new podcasts have come from pandemic times. Hundreds. Probably. Because, like, all you really need to start a podcast is, like, boredom and a friend. Not even a friend. Just like, <laughs> yeah, you can do it by yourself. <laughs> We're not friends. God. I bet you there are people who are, who have tried making podcasts and now it's just them listening to themselves talk. <laughs> that's like a form of therapy. Oh, man. Yeah, that's like, that's just like an out loud journal entry, basically. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, tell me your murder. Oh, should we, should we jump right in? Yeah, they don't need any should more. We, should we chat? give them like a disclaimer of... How awful these, if we make future like episodes, a, are going to be. Like how bad our episodes are going to be or how bad the murders are. Probably both. So, trigger warning one, we might suck at this. Trigger warning two, these murders might be really gory and graphic. Yeah, and actually that's kind of the goal is to pick things that, one, interest us, which is that kind of subject. Yeah. But two, it's got to be a wild story, right? Otherwise, why are we talking about it? Yeah. All right. Go for it. Okay. So this here. story for the first episode is about Joseph Michael Niesenson. At least I think I think that's how you pronounce his last name. N I S S E N S O 
H-N, like John. Anyway, it sounds ridiculous. I think it's ridiculous, and I see why, because this guy is an absolute god-awful human being. Okay, and I know nothing about this story. I have right. never heard of it. Right. You didn't tell me about it. In fact, whenever I was like walking behind you, you were like, don't look. So, total surprise. To True. Me. Yeah, that's kind of the whole premise of this, is that we're, we're one of us does all the research, tells the story, and we kind of just watch to see how the other one reacts. Yeah, we'll alternate weeks. Yeah. If that's how we decide to do that's it. That's how we do it. If we ever do another one of these again. I know. <laughs> this, is so, this is so sad, trying to make this podcast, knowing that literally no one is going to listen to this, no. except for us. And our cats. Maybe my mom. <laughs> 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 oh, okay, where do I start? So, the toughest thing about this story for me was, the first thing I tried to do was, I basically just typed in, uh, Lake Tahoe, California, serial killer. And the first thing that popped up was this name, Joseph Michael Neeson-san. And it said something about death row and uh, sentenced to death. And I was like, all right, this, is, this, this guy is probably going to be on our list. But when I looked him up because I wanted a little backstory on who he was, there was nothing about his early life. Nothing at all. So basically, even if this guy, this guy has done some horrible, horrible things... Even if we had the chance to be like, ah, well, when he was growing up, he wasn't that bad. Nope, he doesn't even get that. Mm. You know? So. Or maybe there's just nothing interesting. Maybe he was just so normal as a child that you can't even say anything. Which I guess is even scarier. Yeah. That some normal no, kid like, just turns into. on your head or anything like that. Yeah. Well, all right. I'm going to jump into it. And actually, the first thing I want to start with is a woman name, named Pam Fredrickson. Okay. So, at some point in the late 1970s, Pam met Joe Neeson's son and his buddy Jesse Prieto in Monterey, California, who apparently were these bad boy kind of guys who sold hard drugs and broke the law here and there. In 1980, Pam moved into Joe's place in Seaside. Now, this is kind of weird because it doesn't say why she moved in. And apparently she was also 15 years old at the time. Oh! And Joe was, I think, in his mid-20s. Oh. Eh, that's pretty bad. That's, uh, I was expecting, like, 50. So it's not as bad. No, it's bad. Wait, wait. <laughs> you're expecting Joe to be 50? Yeah. And her to be 15? Yeah. Oh, I see what you mean. You know, just, like, I, I wasn't sure where in his life story we were picking up. Okay, so he's, like, mid-20s. Yeah. Takes home a teenage girl. Friendship, right? Yeah, she li- she moved in like to live with him. <laughs> yeah, and maybe this is this is another hard thing about doing this podcast is trying to prepare and trying to get as much background information as you can. Sometimes they use pseudo pseudonyms for these people, mm-hmm. so like Pam Fredrickson might not be her actual name. Mm. And so when when uh, looking for some background to try to f- answer these questions, it's just going to be kind of a shit show okay. of like, do we know this? Do we not know this? Do you want to cite your sources? Oh, I guess I guess I need to do that. One, we're we're scientists, right? We have. Oh yeah. How did I forget to cite a damn source? Oh man, so I. A lot of the information that I'm going to read here is from a book titled uh, "Evil Walked Among Us" by I think the guy's name is Robert Scott. I have so many tabs open that this is going to be a, a nightmare to try to navigate through. Um. Just grad school things. Right? Yeah, Robert Scott. Nothing on Robert Scott other than... Actually, 
I guess if I want to say one thing about Robert Scott, he kind of writes as a typical uh, white male boomer, to be honest. He doesn't really... To any of the victims, he does not do them justice, in my mm. opinion. And actually, um, I saw some comments on the book where um, the family of some of the victims commented on Amazon books mm-hmm. and was like, hey, like, that was our daughter, mm. and you didn't even ask us yeah. if you could write a, a book about her. Oh, that's not good. Yeah, and, it, and it's all, it's it's so centered around Joe. Yeah. That it, it's it's yeah it's a little bit odd, and I, I think that he kind of writes in a way to be like look how look how interesting mm-hmm. this Joe Neeson son yeah. guy is, rather than being like hey this shit happened to people and let me tell you the story about those people yeah right? I mean yeah I mean men are just bad at that in general yeah I mean look at me I'm trying to start a podcast That's and I have what, no idea like, what I'm I, doing. <laughs> I can't listen to men talk about true crime. Like, oh, I guess I should stop. <laughs> you want to so start? I'll just read it for myself. That's not what I meant. I can listen to you because you know. Well, like, I think it's hard to listen to men talk about true crime because it's like you definitely like. I feel like I could look at a guy and be like, "You could be one of them." Well, that's the problem. Is that like all the ser- if you just like lined up the photos of all the serial killers. There's some that, like, you look at them and you're like, yeah, murderer. But others are just, like, average white men. Like, average looking. You can't trust anybody. Yeah, it's bad. It's bad. But I don't think you're a serial killer. So, you're gonna be better. I'm glad glad you don't think that. Oh, wait. I'm glad you do think that. You've got... English is not my best subject. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I guess I should start over. Pam Fredrickson. She's 15. She, yeah, she's 15, it's the 1970s, it's Monterey, California, and she's moved in with Joe and his place in Seaside. Um, now, there were always people entering and leaving the place, especially young people, which is kind of like, this is a, a, a theme throughout this story. Uh, mainly because Joe and Jesse Prado were selling hard drugs out of their place. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, one day they were busted by the police, and Pam was called in to testify as a witness. Now, during her testimony, Pam told the court that she had recently been living at her boyfriend, John Russell's house. Oh, my screen just went black. Oh, there we go. In San Jose because she was afraid of Joe. Then a few days before the preliminary hearing, Joe called Pam and told her not to testify against him. She told Joe that she had left everything behind, including her friends, just because she was afraid of him and that he should help with her new expenses in San Jose. Uh, Joe agreed to this, and they agreed to meet at the Capri restaurant on Highway 101 on the south side of San Jose. And we still don't know what, what Joe and Pam's relationship is to one another. Yeah, I don't think they're dating. I think that, I think that, uh, he, she kind of viewed him as, like, kind of cool, older guy who was someone to hang out with, and she didn't, I guess she didn't want to live at home. Hmm. So okay. she thought, I gotta find a roommate, and yeah, it's the 1970s, right? right? Yeah, it's hard to picture a 15-year-old named Pam also. I mean, I know, right? I, I think this is her pseudonym. I, Yeah. But then again, all of today's Pams were 15 or that age in the 70s. Ooh. Unless they went by, like, Pamela. Yeah. Oh, I, <laughs> I don't know why I said <laughs> Okay, Pamela. It's like oh, Borat from, from the uh, Office. Oh, yeah, or Pam the Office. Yeah. 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 That's where you got that. Okay. So, um... 
So they go to meet at Capri Restaurant on Highway 101. So she didn't tell Joe, but she brought her boyfriend, John Russell, with her for protection, which is smart. Uh, when they arrived, she got out of the car and walked inside to the restaurant to use the restroom. When she walked back out of the restaurant, Joe was standing there waiting for her. He then told her to walk over to his van so that they could talk away from the restaurant. Mm -hmm. He opened the door to his van, got inside, and then before Pam could react, Jesse appeared from behind her and pushed her into the van. Wait, who's Jesse? So Jesse is the guy who, that was like Joe's wingman, Was basically. he the one that was selling drugs with Joe out of the house? Yes. Okay. So they're they're like around the same age, too. Joe, Jesse, and John. There's, it's, that's going to continue <laughs> like crazy. Okay. There's a, there, you'll see. Anyway, I don't want to get ahead of myself. But, yeah, Jesse go, sneaks up behind her, pushes her into the van, and Joe has a knife on him. And I don't think Joe stabbed her, but she got stabbed in a way. Because when Jesse pushed her in, he already had the knife in his hand mm. and kind of cut her leg. That's what that's according to, to Pam. Okay. Um, and they shut the door, ran over to the driver's seat, drove off. Now, John was there, and mm. he was in his car and saw what was happening. Oh, shit. Gunned it after them, so it's like a, it's like a car chase. Mm. But fucking John didn't fill up on gas. Oh, man. So, like... Ah, it sucks because he was doing all the right yeah, things. Yeah, you gotta, you gotta fill up on gas. Before you go <laughs> I feel like he's like, all right, I'm gonna protect you. Oh, fuck. By the way, uh, we need to run to the show. <laughs> Can y'all stop first before y'all take off with Hold my girlfriend? Band. One second. Yeah. Um, so they drive off. John is, you know, he runs out of gas. Yeah, getting um, the Jerry can. Joe and Jesse pulled off the road into a wooded area. Jesse told Pam to take her clothes off. She said no. Mm -hmm. And then Joe came over and raped her. He then said, if you testify against me, I'll kill you. He said, if you think this is bad, wait until you testify. If I'm convicted, I have friends on the outside who will take care oh, of you. No. Yeah, so this is kind of like a little glimpse of how, how what Joe is all about, mm -hmm. right? A few days later, she testified against him anyway. So, Whoa. yeah. Oh my god. This and and Damn. and this, you know, this is only like two or three days after the incident. Yeah. So like, not only is she, I mean, think about the number of things that that people go through where they won't speak up for years. Yeah. Decades. Right. And she was like, Nah, we're we're, we're getting this out there now. Yeah. Right. Okay. Um. Unfortunately, though, this is the sad part, the charges that Pam brought up against Joe and Jesse went into judicial limbo, and the court documents were never filed. So this mm -hmm. is classic 1970s court case here, where things get brought up that are not related to the initial case, and there's all sorts of hearsay. So these are drug dealing charges, right? Yes. Okay. But when she brings this up, it's like, no one knows what to do, there's all these accusations, and then they have mm -hmm. to file for like a bunch of... Different things with the courts. Okay, so she told them about this attack. Oh, yeah. She was put okay. on the stand, like, just to talk about, like, what was going on in the house, and she's like, by the way, I have something else to tell you. Oh, my God. Okay. And not only is it, like, this, but this happened, like, a couple days ago, mm -hmm. and Joe wanted me not to testify, and I'm here anyway. Wow. Yeah. And they were like, they were like, bad. Well, and there was, and, and I think that, like, there was so much confusion on, like, what was being, it was, I don't know, it was not handled. Yeah. Well, yeah, plus there's all that like paperwork thing. It's like that's not part of this. It trial. was lost in paperwork. Yeah. Like, well, who's you have a filing cabinet yeah. <laughs> back then? It's like, 
Yeah. <laughs> Wait, no, explain to me the history of Yeah, let me, you know, I wasn't alive back then. <laughs> okay, so just months later, two teenage girls in Monterey went missing, and guess who the last two people to see them alive were? Joe and Jesse? That's exactly right. Mm, well, yep. yes. So now we're going to take a little detour. Okay. All right, sort of. Uh, actually, I'm wrong about that. <laughs> let's, talk, let's talk about these. Right yeah, let's talk about these two girls. All right. So on September 9th, 1981, so this is a few years later. Well, I could be wrong. Uh, a group of woodcutters discovered the body of a young girl up on Chew's Ridge. Uh, detectives were called in the scene. They observed a decomposed body on a fallen tree, later identified as 14-year-old. I put 14-year-old here. It's she might have been 13. It's mm -hmm. kind of hard to to know. Some sources say 13, some say 14. 14-year-old um, Tanya Jones, hanging by an electrical cord. Mm. Uh, as one of the detectives approached the body, they looked further down the ridge and discovered the decomposed body of another teenage girl. <gasps> oh no. And this was 14-year-old Tammy Jarski. Uh, she was partially skeletonized, oh. and there were some items of clothing present. Which, so like, she was, it, it, the, the body was definitely, like, deteriorating yeah. and decomposing. And the How are long does it take a body to decompose? Apparently not that long. How long do they think they've been out there? Um, the... I might get to that. Okay. If I don't, I, I, I deeply apologize. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the electrical cord that they found tied to the tree was wrapped around Tanya's neck. Mm. Uh, and she was wearing a wool-type letterman's jacket, blue tennis shoes, and socks, but no other clothing other than the jacket, which is a little bit strange. strange. I think that means that whoever killed her put the jacket yeah. back on her. Uh, there was a cloth between her teeth that was tied behind her head, and her hands were bound behind her back. Mm. Yikes. Uh, Tammy Jarski, it's hard to pronounce her name, had a red cloth bandana tied around her neck and remnants of brown corduroy pants on her person. It appeared that she had fallen or been dragged down the ridge away from Tanya's oh. body. Yeah. Um, oh, I put in here note. One of the woodcutters who discovered the two girls remembers hearing screams from up on Chew's Ridge in the middle of the night that lasted two hours oh off and on. Oh my god. Yeah. Nobody called the police? Oh, well, they said that they thought it could have been a cougar because apparently oh cougars can also God. make really loud wailing sounds that sound like women screaming. Oh, that is true. Is that true? That's true. Oh! It's awful. You should look it up. What the? Is that like how these stories of like the banshee yeah. kind of come about? Probably. Is it probably here? Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. Like, can you imagine camping? Personally, but apparently like the cougar cry is awful. Jeez. Yeah. Damn. Yeah, that's why rough. people kill people out there. Also, two sense. hours. Yeah, do anything for like two hours. Them. That's a that's a sporting event. Yeah. Whew. Wow. Okay, so the medical examiner later stated that a screwdriver had been jammed into Tanya's body so violently oh. that the metal shaft broke off and was no. still lodged in her sternum. Oh my god, that's awful. <laughs> oh my goodness, this is a great one to start with, right? Ugh. Ugh. Okay. Detectives later found out that both, girl, both girls had moved out of their homes and lived in foster care together. They often spent time hitchhiking together. Apparently, the night of the murders, the two girls were seen in the back of a brown sedan with two older men seated in front. 
Also, detectives learned that a brown sedan was towed out of the Choose Ridge area after it became stuck. The car belonged to Joseph Michael Niesenstein, and on the night of the murders, he was scheduled to work at Sambo's Restaurant in Carmel Valley, but he had not shown up for work that night, so he, he did not have an alibi. Uh, big no-no. Big no-no. <laughs> also, what does he do there? I think he's a cook. I would not want him preparing my food. Right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which, like, maybe he's a good cook. <laughs> How do we know? Maybe he keeps They're clean. They're not mutually exclusive, those things. It's true. Murdering and cooking. Oh, that is so true. Right? Especially uh, cooking the bodies. Yeah. Doesn't yeah. That looks delicious. Gourmet, even. Yeah. That's a great show to watch. Yeah. If you want to, like, lose sleep. Or... If you hate yourself. Watch <laughs> <people>. <laughs> or if you want to hate yourself. Yes. People. Okay. Also, the girls were seen eating at a Denny's that day by a freaking police officer. Mm. The police officer received a call from the owner of Denny's about a couple of runaway girls at the location. The officer contacted the manager, but the girls were no longer in the restaurant. But when he drove around the parking lot, he noticed a vehicle owned by Jesse Prieto. He knew Prieto very well, and he knew his vehicle. So apparently Prieto had been, like, in and out of custody for numerous things. How did the person at Denny's know they were runaways? Um, that's a great question. Did they look? Did they have, like, the runaway aesthetic? I guess. Yeah. Um. Scared. Yeah, maybe they overheard a conversation. Oh, yeah. Okay. Because you can go to Denny's alone at 14. Oh, yeah. Especially Denny's. And Denny's, like... No questions asked. Yeah, are you kidding me? (laughs) I just want my wobbles, baby. (laughs) They're, like, no shoes, no shirt. Full yeah. service. No problem. <laughs> it's Denny's. I think that's their official slogan. <laughs> oh. What's that meal? The slam? The grand sla- sl- the grand, grand slam. slam? I almost said the grand slammer. I was about to say the slamma jamma, but <laughs> I don't think that's right. Um, okay. Um, yeah, he knew Prieto well because obviously this is a rough, rough type type of guy. Yeah. In and out of jail constantly. Uh, when the officer approached the car, he saw Jesse in the driver's seat and a man in the passenger seat who later was, later they figured out it was Joe. Uh, he asked them if they had seen two runaway girls at the Denny's. This is so strange to me. Whenever I see two men sitting in a car in a parking lot, just sitting there. Red flag. Last thing I want to do as an officer go, hey, have you seen two young girls around here? Right? Like, how about you just tell them, hey, there's two young girls over there. Right? It seems kind of weird. To, wait, what do you mean? To ask them? If so, them? like, I feel like two grown men sitting in a brown, I don't know, old brown sedan, just two in a parking lot, just hanging ever out. at any time for any reason. And just hanging out? Like, <laughs> I, I wouldn't, I don't know, it feels like he, I wouldn't mention that, that they're... Well, he's looking for them, right? I guess he's, he's like, going around to anyone that's around and see if they saw them. Yes. Plus, it was a different time. Like, True. Now, you would probably approach that differently. But then... It yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. Rough time. Yeah, maybe, maybe I'm just acting weird about this. Probably. Oops. Well, <laughs> there's the whole white male problem. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's see. Uh, yeah, Jesse had said no. He hadn't seen anyone. Although, the, the cop looked over to the left and said... And noticed that there was a girl standing outside the restaurant. He approached her and asked for her name. 
She didn't cooperate at first, but when her friend approached, who apparently had been sitting in Prieto's car, which is odd, uh, the friend told the officer her name was Tanya Jones. And then the first girl revealed that her name was Tammy Jarski. So the cop went over there and said, have you seen them? They said no, and one of them was currently in the car at that yeah. moment. Yes. Okay. Yep. <laughs> uh, yeah, really, really good cop. <laughs> good detective. <laughs> really good at his job. They all uh, are. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the officer told him to go back to their foster home. Mm. That was mm -hmm. his, his plan Taking of action. Taking care of business. And apparently, they walked off in the direction of the foster home. Okay, well, that's how you know. Yeah. I would feel good about all, that. All's well. All in a day's work. <laughs> they'll make it. How far is it? God knows how far, but they'll make it. Jesus. Also, they probably left for a reason. I would imagine things aren't I know. great. I know. It's not like just because they walk in the direction. They can turn around whenever the hell they want. It's just, it's just. Some brilliant thinking. You'd think that he'd be like, listen, let me take you back. Right? You let me, let me drive you back. Or ask, like, is everything okay? Do you have someone who can pick you up? Yeah. Do you want me to wait with you for them? Do you have their phone number? Or Anything. Are they being abusive? But also, <laughs> like, you wouldn't maybe think to ask that. Right. Right. Oh, I should, I should drink my wine. Wine break. Yeah. This is the moment in the podcast where everyone decides they're, they're done listening. <laughs> oh, this far? Yeah. <laughs> wow. wow. We all made it far. I say this as if people are actually going to listen. Yeah, farther than I would have if I were not currently speaking. Okay. So, soon after the incident, Joe packed up and moved to Oklahoma. So, I made a little quick jump here. Soon after the uh, murder, I guess. Because I'm, I'm assuming at this point we all know. Okay, it, it's Joe much, who did how it. How much time was between this Denny's... Oh, it was that day. What? It was that day. Oh, how much time, I mean, between the Denny's thing and, then and them the bodies getting being found? Oh, ah. Uh, because that'll answer my decomposition question. I don't know. I don't think, I mean, it's definitely within the same year. I can tell okay, you that. that, yeah. I think it was like a few days. I think it was either a few oh. days or a few weeks. I'm pretty sure it was like pretty, okay. uh, pretty soon. Now I need to research body decomposition rates. That's in incognito mode, right? <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of body decomposition studies, um, as geoscientists, we aren't very familiar with this particular field, but remember when we looked up the body farms? Oh, the body the farms. Body farms. Wonder, you want to explain what that is, um, if you can? I'm not an expert, per se, but, you know, you have questions or concerns in the medical industry about how long it takes decomposition. That has relevant, in, uh, what do you call that? Implications for medicine as well as for detective work, yeah, right? Especially, how cr long a body especially criminal there. justice. Yeah, exactly. Has his body been here for a week, for a month? And so the only way to study that is by like putting a body in the ground, digging it up after a week, a month, a year, and seeing the state of decomposition. Yeah, which so, is actually, if you think about it, that's a pretty easy study to do. Well, turns Take out, a body, like, put it there, and let it just exactly sit there. exactly how they do it. And they have, like, these giant, they call them body farms. You can look it up on Wikipedia. Again, Central Texas, right? Yourself. And the biggest one is in Central Texas. Yeah. Yeah. Represent. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Z is from Texas. I'm not from Texas. Just... You know. Kind of one of those thank God moments? I No, no. Just, you know, that we're different people. Just yes. so that our 
our massive audience. So they know who to hate and who to knows like. Knows that I'm not a white male. <laughs> nor from Texas. Right. <laughs> Irrelevant facts. So, yeah, apparently Joe packed up and moved to Oklahoma, like, immediately after this. Okay. Not um, suspicious. Now, I don't know if he meets Cheryl Rose in, Calif- in California or in Oklahoma, but they meet. And Cheryl Rose apparently was going through a pretty rough time in mm-hmm. her life at this, at this part of her life. Uh, she was hooked on drugs, including heroin, mm. and wanted a clean start at life. So Joe was really nice to her and told her that he wanted kids and a family one day. So he was very uh, convincing. Mm -hmm. Charming. uh, Charming. Yeah. And she kept telling him that she wanted to move to, I think it's pronounced Tula Lake, Washington. It's near uh, Tacoma. And that was where her mother and stepfather lived. So this is kind of the relationship that's building in Uh Oklahoma. How old old is he now? Still? I think he's still in his mid-20s. And how old is Cheryl? Uh, I think she's younger. 15. Uh, That's so far his favorite age is like 14 through 15. Oh, uh, yeah, for sure. Oh, is that, a, is that a thing? I think so. Okay. Um, here's a little backstory on Cheryl. Uh, Cheryl said that she had, well, this is only some backstory. This is the only backstory that I could gather that was, I don't know, it's kind of depressing. Okay. But Cheryl said that she had met a man named Denny Ray Rose when she was just 13 years old. Oh, no. Uh, Denny was already in his 20s and in the army. She lied about her age so that she could get married to him when she was 13. Oh. They moved all over the country from army base to army base. They were both into the swinging lifestyle. Oh. And, uh... Like, like swinging, swinging? Yeah. At 13, you're into that? No way. Well, it sounds to me like it's probably Denny. Yeah. 100%. It's gotta be... Victim and survivor. Oh, I mean, regard even yeah. if she wanted to, I feel like she's still a victim in that sense. Yeah. I mean, she's too young to be if able to. You want to, you don't want to at that age. Right. Uh, their marriage lasted 14 years, and her and her son what? named Joseph, her son's name is Joseph. That marriage lasted 14 years, longer than she was old at the time. Yeah, oh, I didn't think about that. Yeah. Ooh. So that's more than half of her life. That's impressive. Uh, what a beautiful union, really. <laughs> Uh, marriage lasted 14 years, and, uh, her and her son, named Joseph, which is a little bit ironic, Mm -hmm. because, uh, yeah, uh, they were left on their own in Phoenix once the marriage ended. And later she met a name, a man named Fernando, and found out that he was stealing from her. And when she asked him why, he said, I'll show you why, and injected her with heroin. (gasps) So that's how she got hooked on her. No way. Yeah. Are you serious? Yep. So it wasn't even like she was like, I'm going to try heroin? Right. And this is kind of why I wanted to say this because like you'll see later in the story that her and Joe go down this dark path and I I just feel, I feel like this was not well said in the book, Mm. Evil Walks Among Us that like Cheryl is a victim by far in this. And actually uh during some of the court hearings, I mean, Cheryl is brought up as an accomplice multiple times. Mm. And it's kind of like, uh, mm. I, I mean, mean, even if she did help, like, uh, it's that, at like, the hands of this it's guy? It's that complex thing, though, where it's like the line between victim and accomplice for women that, like, I don't know, enable the, the abuse of other women. Like, you remember the Gallegos? Yeah. 
that Karen and Georgia covered. Yeah. Like, she's a victim, right? But also, like, did horrible things, too. She's a little... She's definitely different than Cheryl. Is that, like, would you say worse? Oh, yeah. Okay. Cheryl is not... Cheryl doesn't enable... I, at least in my opinion, and based on what I've been able to gather, yeah. the information I've gathered, I don't consider Cheryl, like, uh... Okay. Or, like, like the lady on How to Get Away with Murder, which is, this is a total tangent. Which, which lady? But her, um, husband has this, like, chamber underground where he has, like, women chained that he kidnapped. And she's, oh. like, keeping the babies because she wanted them. Oh, yeah, she's not as bad as her. Okay. Cheryl's not as bad as her. Okay. Yeah. No. Irrelevant tangent. That was creepy, too. Right. For people that don't watch How to Get Away with Murder, that's all we've been doing in our evenings for a few weeks now, is we just binge that show. And it's a great show to watch. Even if you're not that into murder, they don't really dive into no. anything that's too, uh... It's not really the dynamics Wait, of what am I saying? Like... You're listening to this podcast. <laughs> yeah, so for those of you that don't like murder... <laughs> um, yeah, but it's, it's more of, like, the judicial aspect of it, right? Yeah, yeah. Legal they system. do a great they do a great job of making uh, law mm-hmm. and law school and I don't know just what it's like to be a like high end lawyer. Dynamics. Yeah, and if that doesn't convince you, this idea might. Viola Davis. That's it. That's oh, the idea. Of course. And uh, Nathaniel Leahy. <laughs> <laughs> Junior. I won't say. I won't say more. About that. <laughs> uh, okay. So let's go back to the story. So. Apparently, Cheryl and Joe were not compatible sexually. He wanted to do a lot of violent role-playing, and she was not into that. Mm. He also introduced fantasies of a much younger woman or girl to where it was almost a pedophile situation. A much younger woman? Isn't she, like, 26 (laughs) at this point? Jesus. Yes. I mean, this was was written in her own words, so I I don't want to change. uh, Yeah. So, at first, he noticed that she wasn't uh, into it, so he respected her in the beginning. But, like, that, that don't mean shit. No. We all know that. Uh, they eventually did move to Tula Lake, Washington. And when Cheryl's mom met Joe, she had a strange feeling about him, obviously. Yeah. Uh, apparently, Joe had showed her mom a big knife while they were in the <laughs> kitchen together, and it freaked her out. And it, at this time, they were living on her property. Oh, my God. So Cheryl's mom kicked him out. Yeah, can you imagine... Like, imagine meeting my parents. Like, you're in the kitchen with my mom. It's the first time you're chatting. And you're like, hey, Lola, you want to see a giant knife? And you just, like, pull out a giant knife. And imagine, like, I, I know people who would be like, hey, check out my pocket knife. Right? That happens all the time. But when you yeah. pull out just, like, a no small sword. too. Just, like, like, whip out a knife. <laughs> hey, I carry this on me, by the way. Just so you know. Okay, that, that tell. I mean, I guess the pedophilia and everything else he's done tells you he has something wrong. But even that, like, hints at some type of yeah disorder. I, I, I know, I feel so... I wish I could find more about his childhood and upbringing and how because he got to this point. that's abnormal. Like, he doesn't have the capacity to, like, be a totally different, charming person... Right, because if he fit that like mold, he would have like pulled the wool over her mom's eyes, and she would have had no idea. Right, he wouldn't have. He wouldn't have done something. He would have known that would have been done exactly. to do. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. Okay, sorry. Go on. Um. So after they were kicked out, they ended up in a homeless shelter. And at this time, the drug use for both of them began to ramp up, and Joe mm-hmm. tried to get Cheryl to become a sex worker. Mm-hmm. Uh, Joe eventually scrapped enough money to buy a Dodge van. 
And it was around this time that Joe met a woman named Sally Jo Sagaris. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is this is a sad one too. Uh, everyone who knew Sally Jo Sagaris said that she wasn't a bad person, but she seemed to be unlucky. I put this line in there because this was an example of how I didn't like the author of this book. I'm going to say this again. Everyone who knew Sally Jo Sagaris said she wasn't a bad person. That's not a compliment. No. She wasn't a bad person. Of course she's not a bad... <laughs> what? She doesn't... Also, she doesn't do anything in this story mm. or in her life that would make her a bad person. Why does he say that? Yeah. And Very then the next weird. part is, but she seems to be unlucky. Right. Hmm. That's weird. That is weird. It's a weird way to say that. And then he says, she was well-liked. <laughs> Okay. Not very humanizing. No. It really bothers me. Okay. One day in April of 1989, so this is quite some time after uh, the Tammy Jarsky and uh, Tanya Jones murders. So I think this is about eight years later. Joe and Cheryl went to Sally Joe's apartment, and Joe invited her to go for a ride with them. So, so I think, you know, I kind of skipped over this, but... I think Joe started to become friendly with Sally Joe. Okay. And and how did he meet Sally Joe? Is that known? Um I thought I put that in here. I'm not sure. Oh I think her I, I'm not I'm not sure. And how old is she? Is she fifteen? I think she's, I think she's older. Okay. She has an apartment, right? Like, yeah. her own apartment? So she, she has a, probably... oh, I think she has a kid, too. Oh, okay. Oh, and her kid is 18. Oh, so she is probably older than 36. She's, yeah, she's, I think she's around that age, actually. Okay. Yeah. Oof, I need to check myself Well, we know sometimes. she's older than 18. Yes. Yes, she is. <laughs> she's much older than 18. <laughs> <laughs> um, Okay. Where am I at here? Ah. Um. They invited her to go for a ride with them. Okay. In his van. As you do. Right. You want to come for a ride with me in my <laughs> in van? In my van? In my old beat-up Dodge out. van? You know joy riding? Oh, what is it? Like a Dodge... What are those vans? There's Odyssey or something? Van. They drove to a quiet area outside of town and parked the van. Nope. Right? <laughs> and then this is recounted by Cheryl. This is all Cheryl's words. Okay. Joe stopped the van, and I stayed in the front seat. Joe and Sally Joe got in the back. I figured they were going to play around a little bit back there. By that time, Joe and I didn't have sex anymore. They were laughing at first and having a good time. I was sitting in the front seat getting high. The next thing I knew, there was a commotion in the back of the van, like a woman trying to cry out. It wasn't a natural sound. It was coming from Sally Joe. I turned around and I saw Joe on top of her with his hand over her throat. Mm. I knew that some people liked that sort of thing, but oh, I could see her face God. was turning purple. <laughs> yeah. She was struggling around. I went back to kind of pull him off her and I even straddled him with my body. All of a sudden he pulled out his knife and began stabbing her. The stabbing was very vivid. He turned around and pointed the knife at me. He was going to stab me and I just froze. Why he didn't stab me, I don't know. Instead, he opened the back door of the van and pushed Sally Joe out the door. Then he told me to get back in the front seat. I said, can't we take her to the emergency room? I hadn't seen 
much blood on her, and I hoped she, was, she wasn't dead. Joe wouldn't answer me. He got into the driver's seat and just took off. As he drove away, he threatened me not to tell anyone about this. He threatened my life and my son's life. He even threatened my father and mother's lives. We drove around to my mother's place and parked. Joe said if I ever told anyone, he would cut off my mother's fingers. Jesus. Once you've seen something like, like he did to Sally Joe, you don't question what a person will do. From that point on, his threats were continuous. Oh, God. Yeah. Brutal. I mean, offering to cut off just the fingers is kind of generous. What a weird... How do you think of these right? How do you people think of these things? Like, I wouldn't have been that creative. I would have just been like, I'm going to, like, kill someone. You know what I mean? Right. Like, I always think about when you watch movies and you have, like, the mafia and people are being interrogated. And it's like, how do you decide how you want to torture a yeah, person? Yeah, like, what a specific threat. Does right? he mean all fingers? A finger? Just the fingers on the, the pinky? The pinky wouldn't be too bad. <laughs> <laughs> I could live with that. Right? I feel, I feel like weighing my <laughs> Like, shit, all right. <laughs> Go tell him, honey. <laughs> tell him what he did. I'll lose a pinky or two. Oh, Hell, cut off my pinky toe. <laughs> Ugh. All right. Um, the next day, so one day later, Joe, Cheryl, and her son drive south as quickly as possible with no real plans of where they were going. So they just left. Mm -hmm. They're like, we're getting out of here. So, her 18 year old. I mean, you know, in 1989, and you murder people and you leave the state, you're probably not getting caught. Yeah. Well,. Right? When did DNA come about? Oh, man. 90s? Don't... <laughs> 90s, right? It had to be at least the 90s. I think it was a thing, like, in the 70s and 80s, but not widely used. Hmm. And it had to be, like... It, it started solving a bunch of cases, like, I think in the early 90s. Okay. I just made that up, but it sounds right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Disclaimer. <laughs> we are not experts, and we are bad at history. We're experts in some things. You're a history expert. I'm a history minor, which means <laughs> nothing from a liberal arts institution. Which means we we dabbled. Mm -hmm. Okay. I have this next section titled Detective Work in Washington. So now we're jumping back to the Sally Joe case. Okay. Right? So she, so No, this is the Sally Joe. We were just on the Whoops. All these My God. All these, some of these people have two names. Yes. That's, yeah. A few days later... <laughs> I don't know. Was I being no, judgmental or what's going on? Okay. A few days later, Sally Joe's body was found right where Joe had left her, and detective began trying to find the person who killed her. There weren't very many leads except for the fact that a witness remembered seeing a short white female and a medium-height male get into their van near the crime scene around the same time the incident was determined to have occurred. By the way, Joe is 5'8". Okay. So, 5'8", like, like about 160 pounds. Alright. Like, literally average. Small to average. Right. Uh, also, Sally Joe's jewelry was missing, and it was very unlikely of her to be leaving the apartment without her jewelry. Detectives... Same. Right? <laughs> Detectives thought that maybe the killer stole the jewelry. Uh, yeah, I, no shit. Uh, <laughs> now, apparently, Joe Nissenson had pawned a ring at the Topkick Jewelry and Loan Store on May 6, 1989, yeah. not long after Sally Joe's body was found. You never pawn. Just keep that shit. Right? Yeah. He didn't want a trophy? <laughs> what <laughs> kind of serial killer are you? 
cakes. Yeah, oops. <laughs> okay. Uh, detectives had the witnesses who saw Cheryl and Joe describe Joe Niesenson to a sketch artist. And when the detectives talked to Cheryl's parents and asked them to describe both Cheryl and Joe, Joe matched the witness description to a T. Also, Cheryl's parents told detectives that both of them had taken off in a hurry in early May and they don't know where they went. So, red flag after red flag yeah. after red flag. Can you describe what Joe looks like at this point? White male. Oh, you want, oh, you want me to? Okay. Uh, he like... Let me see. I can pull up a picture. Okay. That's actually a really good idea. See? We'll, we know we'll what to post do here. the pictures on our Instagram. Just really? Like, <laughs> just like Jordan and Karen do. Alright, Joseph Neeson-san. Say you need to make an Instagram now. I'm wasting time in this podcast. This is sad. Dead air? Should I like sing something? Nope. Should I? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think they're asking for that. Should I do an advertisement? I'll pour more beer. How about that? Yes. Is that nice ASMR? 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 It actually kind of does sound nice. Really? It's like a waterfall, right? He basically has like those, that thick, you know like the white guy with the thick mustache and nothing else, like everything else shaved? Like, like he's bald? No, 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 like, oh, like okay. normal hair, thick thick black mustache. What is normal hair? You know, like a normal guy's hair, black, brown hair. Mm -hmm. A normal white wow, guy's hair. I'm doing a horrible <laughs> job. <laughs> <laughs> How, like, unidimensional. Okay. Normal hair. Okay. Imagine typical... Yikes. You're a ginger. <laughs> First of all. <laughs> okay, imagine typical white guy. Okay. Kind of pale skin. Mm-hmm. Brown hair. And then thick black mustache. Okay. So, he looks the type. Yeah. And actually, like, the sad part is I need to pull up the book and find the page to find this image in it. Okay. So this you is can't, kinda like, Google his name and find Google images? I mean, this is all him old. I even typed in young. Oh, no. Okay. So imagine that, but young. Okay. Yeah, not good. Not good. Pretty, like, pretty standard He's serial done killer. shit. Like, you can see it in his eyes and his, his mustache. Yes. Yes. Okay. Uh, I need to find my place. So... Um, detectives had the witnesses who, oh yeah, they described him, fit him to a T, red flags. Da, 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 da. <laughs> Thank you, Georgia. <laughs> now, while detectives were doing their damn good detective work, <laughs> that's what I wrote here, <laughs> they had no idea that in Northern California, a teenage girl was already dead. Okay. Presumably by the hands of Joe Neeson's son. Okay. Uh... Because this girl had been friends with both Joe Neeson-san and Cheryl Rose. Whoa. Yeah. So the last time she was ever seen alive, too, was when she was getting into Joe's van. So, okay, paint the map for me. We started in... Monterey, California. Monterey. Yep. We moved to... Oklahoma. Oklahoma then to Washington. Washington. Now back to California? Yep. Okay. So, now... And he's not even Insert. in the military. Like, there's no reason for that. Well, his reason is he's killing people. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, exactly. There's no justifiable. You can't be like, oh, for my job oh, yeah. as a... As a traveling salesman. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and that's not like Western Seaboard. It's just like random. Right, right. Okay. Okay, insert Kathy Graves. 15-year-old Kathy Graves Ooh. of South Lake Tahoe. Tahoe. South Lake Tahoe. Had endured a tough young life. 
When her parents got divorced, the courts gave her father full custody, and her father was a drunk. Uh, things were not okay between her and her dad, so she often spent time at her aunt and uncle's house, Ivan and Sherry Parsley. Um, I know. I, I thought the same thing. I thought I feel so bad for them because in in the book they're lovely people. Okay, but sorry, I, but, sorry, sorry, Parsley. <laughs> but her last name Parsley. <laughs> Cousin Basil. Sorry. Yikes. Uh, Kathy and her friend Maggie knew Joe because they used they used they used they used to buy pot for him. <laughs> they used pot. used to buy pot. Yeah, hydrate. There you go. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> All right. In August of 1989, Kathy walked to Hallmark for a job interview. My God, my voice is so <laughs> Yikes! <laughs> Should I do that right in the mic? Yeah. Okay. Lean in. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this is going to be my favorite part of listening to this again. <laughs> Where you're like, skip forward to like 50 minutes. All right. Um, yeah, she walked to Hallmark for a job interview. Then she began... Sorry. This is Kathy, Kathy Graves. And 15 years that? old. Okay, okay. Got yeah, it. so I, she's, she's trying to do that, you know, like high school job at yeah. Hallmark. Uh, then she began walking back towards her home. So maybe the job interview went well. I don't know. Well, I guess we'll never know. Okay. Cheryl and Joe were driving along the same roadway that Kathy was walking on. Mm. Bad timing. Joe spotted Kathy and mm. asked if she wanted a ride, and she got into his van. Shit. 1989, yeah. right? What right. do you expect? Like, you'd be like, thank you, of course. Oh, what a nice young man. Yeah. What a nice <laughs> What mustache. a gentleman. Uh, yeah, nice mustache. <laughs> Can I say shotgun? I love your van and mustache. <laughs> wow. Awesome. Oh, this van doesn't have windows. <laughs> is there a bed back there? Okay. Yikes. So, this is the last time Kathy was seen. She was reported missing two weeks later by her father, which is kind of... Two weeks? Well, her, remember, her father sucked. Yeah, but... And she didn't, you... live, she didn't live there. Oh, that's right. So, like, you know, there was all this... I like, mean, yeah. Yeah. Okay. For a pretty substantial amount of time, Kathy's case was being treated as a runaway. I mean, that's what they always do. I know. Like, I always hate when I... I, I always hate when I find that out, because it's like, oh. And it's tough because, like... Where's the line between pr protecting people who are trying to escape, like legitimately get away from a bad situation, and, and try to bring them trying home? Trying to find people who are not okay yeah. because they've been abducted or something. Tough. Law enforcement, fix that on top of dismantling yourself. That's why we need more. Uh, um, we need people who are experts in psychology and how to actually treat people. Yeah, more treating, less... Enforcing. Enforcing. Less all of that. Less militant behavior. Um, yes. Depends on which side. So, oh, yeah. There's good militants. Oh, well, well yeah. This is a totally... Less government military yeah. behavior. How about that? <laughs> yeah, we don't endorse any political party nor beliefs. Disclaimer. As long as it's not. But... <laughs> 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 okay. Um, almost exactly a year later, on August 22nd, 1990, two hikers were walking through the woods near Baldwin Beach on Lake Tahoe's western shore and noticed a human skull in a small depression Whoa. in the ground. Imagine finding that. <sighs> I would think Dream it's fake. I would so think it's fake. <laughs> like, 
I always think about that, like, like uh, when I took anatomy in high school and they always had, like, the skeleton hanging up in the yeah. class. It's like, Was it real? I don't know. I never knew. Whoa. Probably not. Probably, I hope not. But I've never seen a real human skull. I don't think. I don't think I have either. Yeah. I don't want to. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that, you wouldn't want to stumble upon, like, that particular setting. That would be or if it's like just the skull? Yeah. Like yeah. You're well, I, yeah. Of all the uh, crime scenes. Like, I wouldn't be that surprised. If I saw a skull laying on a beach, I would be like, okay. I'd be so weathered. I can do it. <laughs> <laughs> It'd be like this nice rounded pearl of a skull. <laughs> Yikes. Don't say pearl of a skull <laughs> ever again. That's going to be the title of this first episode. If um, Z is giving the next episode alone, you'll know what happened. Oh. Call it, yeah. Just... Put me away. Evan, he's one. He said pearl of a skull. <laughs> he treated his skull as if it was a beautiful thing to it's find. It's jewelry, it's, really. Yeah, That's nice happy. and shiny. All right, okay. back on the rails. Uh, detectives were caught on the scene and about 50 feet from where the skull was found. Detectives also found scattering of bones. Mm. Okay, yeah, that part I don't like. When it's just like... Because now it's like remains. Yeah. Like, if you find just a skull, it could be like... No, it fell out of this Pirate fell out of this chemist this anatomy teacher's yeah. uh, truck. <laughs> they were just on their way to teach. You know. Feel the class. You know how it is when you have to transport your when you're driving human skeleton. On the beach with your skull yeah. for educational purposes. Of course. We've all been there, right? No, just me? Okay. So now we're gonna cut to Florida. That's the next section I have here. Of course it is. Right? It wouldn't be complete without Florida. That's what they all say. <laughs> <laughs> Joe and Cheryl got married in Lake Tahoe, and then they moved to Florida. Oh, so she was like, you know what? It's going well. Let's get married. Well, I think she was fortunate it. in this marriage, because apparently there's this whole bullshit thing about how you can't testify against your spouse. Yeah. Is that a thing? Is that, that is, currently that is a, a thing? thing? That's currently a thing. Why? Uh, Too many uh, people trying to railroad their significant other without getting a divorce? Um, I don't have personal experience with that, but I think that, I think there's something there. Weren't we talking about this recently? We might have been. And that way your spouse can't use it as, like, leverage against you. Like, I'm going to go to the police about this because I want a divorce or because I want to get away from you. You know, it has to be someone who doesn't have that, like legal on paper tied connection to you Ooh, yeah or if you want money like if, if you happen to be married to someone who's wealthy and you that's that's want definitely money, what it is yeah that's you can't go be like oh you know they oh, someone something yeah. yeah we don't know we don't know shit about anything we're just speculating we're speculating and yeah. usually when we speculate we're like 99 percent wrong <laughs> yes <laughs> <laughs> and, then we, and we see it come up or something or we'll be in like a talk and be like oh even in our own areas of study. Yeah. But you know what? This is our podcast, and we can talk about whatever we want. And you know so, what? You don't have to listen. You should. No. Start you your own speculation. <laughs> Do it yourself, then. damn it. <laughs> okay. Uh, during this time, detectives in Washington were investigating the murder of Sally Jo Sagaris. They decided to travel to Florida to talk to Cheryl. Okay. Which is... I don't think that's normal. Where detectives from one state travel to another state across the country to talk to someone? In Mindhunter, they did. Yeah, but they're doing a, a clinical study. Good point. That's true. That's crazy. Yeah, because isn't it, like, not their jurisdiction? Don't they call up, like, hey. I don't know. Oh, I don't know. 
Again, we don't know. <laughs> Objection? All right. They decided to try... Oh, yeah. Now, I put in here a note. Four women and one man were murdered in the Gainesville, Florida area around this time. Okay. What year is this? Um... I don't think I specified. One? It's probably... Yeah, I think it's 9091. What? There's gonna be... This is so irrelevant. There's no comparison. What year was the Gainesville Ripper active? Just so I can, like, place this. I... That's a great... Isn't this gonna mark something? I could be making that up. Gainesville Ripper. August of 1990. Holy... Okay, so I it's kind of close. Yeah. Imagine the horror of living in Gainesville. The fact that time. they were both there. Yeah. What was his name? Oh, uh, his name was Danny Rowling. Yeah, that was it. Not Mark. Close enough. Same thing. Same brand. <laughs> Same Sorry. Brand. <laughs> okay. Um, Cheryl said she was now deathly afraid of Joe, and the only reason she married him was because he wanted to make sure she couldn't testify mm. against him. Oh, I see. Yeah. For the murder of Sally Joe. Yeah. Uh, then Cheryl told them about Kathy Graves. She said that her and Joe were in a van with Kathy just a few miles outside, outside Camp Richardson on Highway 89 in the wooded area with no structures around. I always try to include these, like, you know, Camp Richardson, Highway 89 details just because, like, we live around here and it's yeah. kind of, like, we've probably driven by this. Yeah. Wow. I know, right? It's kind of... So, she's just giving this... Yeah, oh, yeah. She's like, she she's done with Joe. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Joe had gone with Kathy into the woods while Cheryl did drugs in the van. This is very eerily similar to Sally Joe's. Well, yeah, record. I think that is, like, the, the theme. Yeah. Literally, like, drugs are an escape for her to yeah. not be part of that. Mm. Yeah, good point. After a short period of time, Joe came running back alone. Joe said Kathy did, didn't want to have sex with him, so he left her in the woods. He said, you don't want to know what happened. You can't handle it. Hmm. Why even say that? I, I don't know. Did she ask? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure she did. I'm but... <laughs> sure it was probably like, where is she? What happened? Okay. So, detectives do their detective work. They get all these statements from Cheryl. Um, Joe becomes like a truck driver. And starts, like, doing that. Wait, he doesn't get, like, arrested for her statements? Next line. Sorry. Joe was arrested in Atlanta, <laughs> Georgia. <laughs> okay. And extradited to Washington. Good. So we've got the murders of... So he's arrested for the murder of Sally Joe. Okay. That's, that's what he's being charged with. Okay. So, skip to trial. This is where shit gets... Kind of awful. Okay. When Joe was interviewed interviewed by detectives while being detained in Washington, he constantly said that he was afraid of Cheryl and that she had been responsible for killing Sally Joe. Mm. He also said that while the couple were in San Diego, Cheryl had molested a two-year-old girl. While Joe... Now, the detectives know he's lying. They're like, okay. no. Uh, while Joe was awaiting trial, an inmate, Greg, requested to speak to one of the detectives. The inmate said that Joe told him that he had killed a woman and that and that was the reason he was in jail. Joe said to him, I let the air out of the bitch. Yeah. Greg said this meant that Joe had stabbed her to death. 
He also said that Joe told him he had killed other women and girls, one of them being 10 years old at the time. Oh. What the hell, man? Also, he's just telling this guy. So how many people does that make that he's killed? Well, this is another thing that I, I noticed uh, on a... There was a forum that I found this on. It was a Capital Punishment or something forum. Um, yeah. Stick you to dark places. Oh, you know. <laughs> you know me, just being investigated work. by the FBI all the time. Um, yeah, apparently that, like, detectives all over the country are trying to, were, have been trying to link him to other murders. Wow. Because, one, he traveled so far across the whole United States, like, over span of not a lot of time. I have not heard about this. Right? Yeah. When I saw this, I was like, oh my god. Especially being, like, remotely kind of like close to tahoe yeah yeah and we are always interested in california serial killers mm -hmm. so well now um, the world will know yeah um another inmate don also interacted with joe and joe apparently showed don a photo of a woman lying on her side in a weedy area with her back exposed so he had this photo in his cell. He just showed it to this guy. It was the crime scene photo of Sally Jo Sagaris. Oh my god. Take a picture of that. Yeah. Uh, Joe also told Don that he and his girlfriend had gone out with, with this woman <clears throat> in his van. Uh, he said that Sally Jo and Cheryl were both in the back of the van engaged in lesbian activity. And Joe was rejected. He said, no woman rejects me. So I stabbed her. It was with the knife to the heart, then I made my girlfriend stab her. Oh my god. Like, what the hell? Also the fact that he thinks that that's, like, somehow a better story to what actually happened. He's, you'll see later on, he's nuts. He's nuts. Um, and there's a little bit of, like, some Ted Bundy in him. Mm. Honestly. It's, yeah. Uh, and you'll see why. Detectives went back to speak with Greg, so the other inmate, and Greg said that they were watching women's tennis on the communal TV. He said whenever one of the players served the ball, she would let out a grunt. He said Joe leaned over to him and said, that's exactly how they sound when you let the air out of them. Oh my God. What? I the? hate that I knew that was what was going to come. Ugh. The guards later searched Joe's cell and they found the crime scene photo of Sally Joe Sagaris that Greg mentioned. So even detectives were like, oh god. Mm -hmm. uh, during the trial, Joe kept blaming his lawyers publicly in court, saying that the system was railroading him. He also publicly accused Cheryl of framing him, etc., etc. I wrote, sociopath, narcissist. Mm -hmm. He was found guilty and sentenced to 25 years to life with the, poss with the possibility of parole. Which is actually going to play a big part in this. Oh no! Not not in that way, but okay. It 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 kind of sets the stage for the the rest of the story. So after the sentencing, Joe wrote a letter to the judge stating, "I still seem to have the same problem that no one seems to want to deal with. As I mentioned in my previous letter to you, I have accused my lawyers of incompetence and prejudice by not cross-examining." Prosecution witnesses asked by for asked for by me. I was not given a proper trial. Joe reiterated that his female lawyer had supposedly told Joe's former jail cell inmate, Don, that she didn't like Joe and and that Joe and that she cooked up charges against him. 
Hmm. Now we're going to fast forward all the way to 2008. Wow. So this is this is after Joe had been serving, I think it was 15 years in prison. Okay, where is he incarcerated? Or was uh, he at this point? Washington, I think. Okay. In 2008, Joe was scheduled to be, to be released from prison. Like, at, like release, Whoa. release. Like, free man. What, like good behavior? Probably. Some, I don't know. Jesus. This is part of the, you know, this is all part of the problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, little did he know, the DA's office in El Dorado County, California, had been putting together their case against him for the murder of Kathy Graves. So Love thank God that they didn't give up on this. Uh, the Washington court was trying their best to keep Joe from being anywhere outside of custody due to his violent sexual nature. So, like, we've got people in California who are like, all right, he's he, he might be connected to these other murders, and we've got to, like, pin a case against him. Yeah. And then you have people in Washington who are saying, regardless of of if he's done anything else, this guy sucks, mm-hmm. and we shouldn't let him out free. So, like... How did he get out? Well, he hasn't gone out yet. He was just released, and this is what's happening okay. now. But even the fact that he was about to get out. I don't know. Okay, sorry. Go on. <laughs> <laughs> the Washington court was trying their best to keep Joe from being anywhere outside of custody due to his violent sexual nature. Psychologist Richard Packard drew up a report about Joe by looking at Joe's documents. <clears throat> The document detailed Joe's past crimes and sexual proclivities, which included sadism, necrophilia, domination, humiliation, and sex with underage girls. Oh, that's not a good list. Yeah, it's not a good list. Also while in prison, Joe refused to take part in substance abuse classes, sex offender treatment, or any type of classes what at all. What else are you doing? Like, can you not How do you find get out? time in your How do you get schedule? out? Like, okay... He's even refusing to take these classes. What do you mean good behavior? Jesus Christ. <clears throat> also, I don't think you could opt out of that. I don't think you could be like, no thanks. No, I'm alright. I think I'm good. <laughs> uh, Packard wrote, He is more likely to, to than not to engage in predatory acts of sexual violence if not confined in a secure facility. He also wrote, On Joe and Cheryl's wedding night, Joe met and had sex with Patty, a sex worker who wanted to be his sex slave. Oh, who, who he wanted to be his sex slave, sorry. Yeah, um, doubt that. <laughs> yeah, I know. Uh, in fact, according to Packard's report, Joe had corresponded with women while in prison, and the sexual fantasy life in the letters was often brutal and included rape and bondage. Yeah. Man. Okay. That's not... Like, rehabitable. You can't rehabilitate that. No. Later, Joe was extradited to El Dorado County, California. And on March 18, 2008, Joe wrote a letter to Judge Douglas Feemister? (laughs) Feemister? How do you spell it? P-H-I-Mister? That is not what I was going to Okay. Feemister? Feemister. Stating that he was not going to allow Femister to have any dealings with him. <laughs> Sorry, it sounds like a, a cartoon. <laughs> <clears throat> um, let's see. 
uh, not gonna allow any okay, Joe is claiming to be more than a person. Like a corporation similar to Coca-Cola or, or Microsoft. What? <laughs> I know, this is wild. Where are we going? He wrote, I, Joseph Michael Neeson, a live flesh and blood person, is the creditor, secured party, and holder in due course, title holder and trade name owner of the justice person Michael Neeson. He even put a circled C behind the name Neeson to show that his name was copyrighted. <laughs> That's not how it works. My God. <laughs> he then noted, the name Joseph Michael Neeson is copyrighted proper. And, oh, sorry. Copyrighted property. And this is full of typos. Uh, and you do not have authorization for its use in any manner whatsoever. I'm willing to waive the fees incurred so far if you stop unauthorized use. Otherwise... You will be entering into consensual contract, and I will bill you oh later. God. He's going to bill the judge no, for using his name. you're not like Disney. <laughs> Jesus. I, Joseph Michael Misasan, do not wish to do business with you or the state of California. It's not business. <laughs> oh my god. That is, like, deranged. Yeah, yeah. He's definitely gone off the deep end. Okay. Wow. During court, he claimed that the courtroom and judge were fake. He refused to state what? his name and refused to enter a plea. He refused to answer any questions at all. In frustration, I love this, Judge Feemister entered a plea of not guilty on Joe's behalf and no bail was set. Is that allowed? <laughs> he basically said, fine, you're going to plead not guilty. Is that really allowed? It happened. A judge can decide for you how you're going to plead? Um... If you're combative, I guess. Wow. Okay. At least you didn't say guilty. Interesting. Which, actually, I don't know if that would be better or worse. In early May of 2008, Joe was charged with the murders of Tanya Jones and Tammy Jarski in Monterey County. In an unusual turn, El Dorado County decided to combine these charges with the murder of Kathy Graves. Okay. So they were both in two different counties, so... Technically, you'd have to go from, like, one to another. But they mm -hmm. decided, now we're combining this together. Um, Joe wrote more affidavits that he was copyright that he was a copyrighted being. He would sign his name with the following additions. Holder in due course. Trade name owner. Signed sovereign unlimited commercial liability capacity. Whoa. He never started referring to the... He even started referring to the California Republic as if California was not one of the United States. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Conspiracy theory out the ass. <laughs> yeah. Just created by himself. Does he? I mean, I guess he doesn't understand, like, what a copyright means. Probably. I mean, I don't. He's. Like, he's. Then, <laughs> Joe okay. fired his lawyer. So without a lawyer, he had to represent himself. This is the whole type of They always do that. They love that shit. I know, right? They love themselves they so love much. Themselves. Oh my god. They're just the most despicable. This guy is a piece of shit, but he loves he himself. He loves it. Yeah. He also wrote a letter to the President of the United States, which... What year is this? This is 2008. Oh. So... Wait, what, what point in 2008? Are we like... Uh, May? Is this May? So we're fully in the Obama years. That's our boy. Oh wait, sorry. We can't. We can't state our uh, political uh, <laughs> affiliation. Okay. 
Yikes! So he fired his lawyer. He started representing himself. He wrote a, a letter to the President of the United States renouncing his citizenship as a U.S. citizen. He said, I do freely give this formal renunciation, being of sound mind, and having with me the power of the living sovereign Yahweh Elohim. Oh. Is that how you say it? Elohim. I don't know. <laughs> Almighty and Messiah Yeshua to make my own volition of this oath of formal declaration. This sovereign man herein declares, and dignity of self-preservation and the rights of liberty shall govern this sovereign. Mm. Joe was in effect trying to make himself the Republic of One. No. How do you even come up with that? In conclusion, he was found guilty and, fa <laughs> and he faces the death penalty. Oh, man. So, there's some notes that I wrote here. Nissan son 62 faces the death penalty for murdering three California teens. Um, so where is he now? Still Washington? He is... I think I'm going to get to that. Now, I wanted to... This is another note I have. Pointing to brain scans taken last month. So this is this is like an article written immediately, like, like during the trial. So this is, you know, it says last month, but this is years ago. Pointing to brain scans taken last month at University of California, Davis. Dr. Douglas Taylor said Nissan's brain is two-thirds the size of a normal brain and spotted with and spotted dead tissue from heavy intravenous cocaine use in his 20s and 30s. Taylor, a medical doctor specializing in psychiatry and substance abuse issues, was brought in to testify by the defense. He showed the jury what he described as images of extremely dramatic drug-induced brain damage visible to the naked eye. Wow. Some of that damage is in Nissan's frontal lobes, a part of the brain that makes people human, in quotes, and is involved in empathy, judgment, decision-making, and controlling sexual and violent impulses, oh, Taylor said. Man. So this is sort of, I think this is the argument that he shouldn't get the death penalty because he had had some sort of brain injury, mm. self-induced from drug use, yeah. um, that kind of caused him to do most of the things he did and for him to act the way he acts. I mean, did it cause it or did it just like set up a circumstance in which he could have like like that was already in him. It was in him and this just oh, like allowed kinda, it to come out. And I guess made it to the point where he couldn't in control my it. Non-professional, non-scientific opinion. But also my I want justice for this. Yeah, for like these. you can't excuse that because Okay, anyway, yeah. Yeah. Um, he testified that the brain damage likely predated or coincided with the four known murders he committed, and that without the damage, Nissan would have been less likely to commit them. Okay. Deputy District Attorney Dale Gomes challenged the assertions as speculation in cross-examination of Taylor. Um, let's see... Apparently he had a really bad heart con heart condition and hepatitis C. He had like degenerative joint disease. Honestly, Whoa. karma. It's it's karma's way of being like you're gonna die a painful death even if you don't die at the hands of, you know, by execution. I mean, I guess. Also, he did a lot of drugs for years, so I'm sure it's. Yeah. Um. Let's see. Yeah, that was sort of like the argument against why he shouldn't be executed. 
Although, the jury deliberated for 90 minutes. Mm. And their testimony was that he should get executed. Yeah. So he's still on death row? Yeah. He's awaiting his execution date? I believe so. Um, let's see. Yeah. And that's John That's Joseph, Joseph Michael <laughs> Neeson-son. Joseph Michael Neeson-son. Yeah. Unknown. That's him. That's, wow. that's that our first story. story on this podcast. <laughs> The Lake Tahoe serial killer, and also like, well, Florida, I, Oklahoma, Washington. Yeah, murder. and you know, there, there's another note I put in here. He could be tied to other murders. Apparently, oh, there are missing is. people who yeah. who he knew. It's oh my just God. yikes. He's pretty bad. He's bad. So how old is he now? Like in his fifties? Uh, I think he's like in his sixties. Sixties, okay. Yeah. Not great. Not great. Excellent. Thank you. I like that. It's our, our first one. My God. Cheers. A start to uh, something great, hopefully. A long road of horrible things. A long road of horrible 